Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be kicking off the first of a two-part series where we're going to be looking at one of my favorite things in nature, the bean. Uh, You you might say the humble bean. Uh, A child Mm -hmm. chanting in the playground might say the magical fruit. Or wait, was it the magical fruit or the musical fruit? I think both variations are valid. Am I wrong? Musical, I've heard. You're probably com- you, you're, you're probably um, combining the idea in your head with the idea of magic beans, which of course uh, are sometimes uh, uh, sold to unsuspecting fairy tale characters. Oh yeah, Jack and the the, the beanstalk. There, mm-hmm. you know, there's a thing about the magic beans in the Jack and the Beanstalk legend that I wonder about. I wonder if the beans have more significance than just being, you know, magic anything that he could have planted in the ground. I mean, I guess, of course, it is biologically significant that they're seeds, right? So they go in the ground and they grow up a a vine or a stalk or something. But there's an interesting thing that I I was becoming more and more aware of uh, as I was reading a book about beans that we'll talk about in this first part today, uh, which is that historically in a lot of cultures, beans – have associations with with poverty or with mm-hmm. like sort of uh, rustic or regular life, whereas like the elites of a society might have more access to meat to get their protein, regular people to get protein. They get a lot of that protein from beans. So beans are often associated with being working class or in the case of the Jack and the Beanstalk story, being somebody who's, you know, just struggling to get along with regular life. Yeah, one thing that came out of of, of my uh, part of the research here was that on one level, beans beans are kind of boring. Be- beans are, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, beans are. I, I disagree, are, but uh, I mean, from a culinary standpoint, beans are exciting. Uh, I, I love beans. Uh, I think that uh, you and I both, I think, are, are both fans of um, of Rancho Gordo beans. Uh, free plug there. Um, so, so so beans beans are wonderful, but but yeah, I think beans don't always have the most exciting place in various mythologies and stories because they do have this association with the common man. They have this association with um, uh, with, with sometimes the, the, the lower uh, tiers of society in, in a given culture, at least until the, the upper um, uh, uh, levels of society then rediscover it and, and start getting curious about what the lower levels of society are cooking. Um, so... At, at times, it feels like you they don't get the respect that they deserve in terms of our, our myth making and our story making. Uh, like, I think that's probably the reason that that we have this idea of the magic bean, right? Because it seems like a stupid thing to buy. Why would you buy a magic <laughs> bean? A bean can't be magic. Beans a bean. And yet, if we did not have beans, just imagine the state we would be in. Like beans are vitally important for feeding the planet. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And one of the things I want to talk about today is how that's not only true in the modern era, but is uh, is true in a historical sense. There are a couple of different places, at least I want to talk about, where beans play probably a pivotal role in, in leading to humanity as it is today. Uh, but yeah, in the Jack and the Beanstalk story, I kind of wonder if getting a, a bag of magic beans is like, you know, it's just like a, an extremely common and not special food item. It's like getting a bag of magical bugles. 
But actually, I think it turns out that there's a lot of interest in beans, uh, strange ideas that people have uh, where people have connected the concepts of beans to to souls and magical beliefs and uh, and what a beans relationship to meat is, as well as the beans relationship to our evolutionary history and uh, and early human civilization. And so we'll be exploring these things as we go on. But I want to start off today uh, by looking at beans in early human civilization. Uh, now, of course, beans. Beans are seeds biologically. That that is the role they play in a plant. They're they're seeds, and the seeds that we call beans come from a family of flowering plants called Fabaceae. That's spelled F A B A C E A E, which, which is one of those fun uh, you know Latin things to say. Uh, but one of the main characteristics of these plants is that they have these distinctive pods which contain their seeds, and the seeds, of course, are the beans we know. Now, there are different uh, genera of beans that, uh, that that sort of feed into the different uh, culinary traditions around the world. You've got the fava beans, you've got the genus Fasciolus, which is the sort of uh, progenitor of many of the common beans we know today, like pinto beans and stuff all, all come from that family. Of course, you have soybeans, you have lentils. Yes, lentils are beans. And all, all these different beans have played important roles in the sort of nutritional package that has been developed along with different cultures of the world uh, uh, over the past few thousands of years. Uh, I was reading about this in a book that uh, an ebook that I downloaded called Beans A History by an author named Ken Albala or Albala, uh, A-L-B-A-L-A from Bloomsbury Publishing in 2017. And this uh, author, Ken Albala, is a history professor at the University of the Pacific. It seems like he has written a lot of books about the history of food. And in this book, he goes into a lot of depth about the often overlooked role of beans in the history of the human species. Uh, for example, we've spoken at length before about the importance of the domestication of grain crops leading to the rise of the first settled civilizations. But in that context, I don't think we ever really discussed the role of beans, uh, the role of beans such as lentils. And Albala makes a lot of this. Uh, he has a whole chapter on the domestication of wild lentils uh, and argues that they played an extremely important role in the nutritional foundation of human civilization. So I just want to read a uh, selection from, from one of his early chapters that gets into this. Albala writes, quote, The story of what is called the Neolithic Revolution has been told many times. The crucial role of wheat, goats, and sheep is always emphasized. Legumes, not just lentils, but chickpeas, vetches, and later peas, somehow get short shrift. But it is likely they play as great or even a greater role than meat and dairy in supplying protein to the growing population. This is a simple matter of efficiency. Per acre, lentils provide more calories than grazing cattle. Just as important, rhizobium bacteria, which thrive on the root nodules of legumes, draw nitrogen from the atmosphere and fix it in the soil. They provide a kind of natural fertilizer, which would have in turn made the wheat grow better. Furthermore, the stems and husks of the plant can be fed to cattle, which of course in turn provides more fertilizer. As in many early agricultural societies, the combination of plants works synergistically in the soil, and so does the combination of starches and legumes in the human diet. The amino acids lacking in lentils are supplied by grains, and the lysine missing from the grains is supplied by the legumes. 
That is, a person can subsist mainly on this vegetable-based diet, and it will support a large population in a way that gathering and hunting cannot. Without the beans, it is certainly less likely that these early civilizations would ever have arisen. Yeah, that 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 really summarizes it well. I think. Yeah, this this idea, especially that may be hard for for I don't guess some folks to um, to understand in the modern era when you when you look at our uh, it's you know, the, the modern uh, love of meat and and often this idea that meat is something that you're going to consume not just every day but like three times a day you know meat mm-hmm. for breakfast meat for lunch meat for dinner um, when this is <laughs> this a is, meat tea in the afternoon yeah <laughs> um, yeah the, the meat coffee etc but this was not. This was certainly not always uh, something that that was um, that could be obtained. I mean, and uh, and 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 certainly you would have to f- have ways to fill that uh, that protein gap in your diet, and and that's where beans come in. I mean, uh, I think anyone who's worked to limit the amount of meat in your diet, you you quickly realize how important beans are. Yeah. Um, like my my uh, my son, uh, you know, decided pretty pretty early on that he didn't. Uh, he basically wanted to be a, a pescatarian or a vegetarian. Uh, but for a little while, he was like, "I'm not sure I'm that into beans." And, I'm, and we're like, "Well, we got news for you. <laughs> if you're if if, if you're going to you know be a, a a pescatarian or a vegetarian, uh, you need to to love the bean. You need to to realize how great beans are and uh, and and understanding like there are varied ways to consume beans." You know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the greatest bean dishes come from culinary traditions that have less emphasis on meat than mm-hmm. than some other ones. Like uh, I think, of, you know, how how well lentils are used in so much Indian cuisine. Like I, I love mm-hmm. Indian lentils. Yeah, I feel like if you take take any culinary tradition and you and you look at how they're preparing beans, you're you're gonna find some treasures in there as long as you dig deeply enough. Uh, you know, and it's um, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah, there's just there's just such a long tradition of of utilizing them and figuring out the ways to maximize their um, uh, their flavor. You know, another way that beans are a real maximizer type food is in efficiency maximization, not just in terms of uh, calories per acre of arable land, which uh, Albola talked about in that section we just discussed. You know, there's there's more calorie density in growing a field of beans than in grazing cattle on that same amount of area. But also beans can be dried and stored in in a state that is essentially indestructible. Yeah. And this is another thing that I think uh, people who have access to modern preservation, canning, refrigeration, freezers, things like this might not appreciate about how important it was in the ancient world to have food stocks that would last you through the winter, the time when the harvest was not going on, you know, when when, uh, access to new fresh foods was was down to a minimum or down to nothing. You had to have something to live off of. And of course, you know, this comes into – uh, food traditions in a lot of different ways comes in with like uh, pickling and fermentation and that kind of stuff. But also uh, beans are an amazing protein source because they can be dried and you can move them around. You can store them through the winter or even across multiple seasons. Uh, the, the, it's an indispensable resource for that reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's really it's really kind of a shame that I think, you know, particularly in American culinary history, at least of the last uh, I mean, I guess we're we're getting out of it to 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 a fair degree. But for a while, there was this idea 
like beans were a side item and that's all beans were mm-hmm. but but beans are ultimately bigger than that they're they're not just the, the 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 little you know black or brown or white puddle next to your meat you know they're the <laughs> thing that that um, that can can more than dominate the plate uh, when the meat is not available or the meat is um, is is just not uh, you know utilized in the household do you think it helps uh, to sort of lure people into bean appreciation by giving them a little slightly more decadent versions of beans? Like the examples I'm thinking of are um, are falafel, which of course is bean based. Mm-hmm. That's based on chickpeas mashed up with certain spices and other ingredients. But then you deep fry it, of course. You yeah, know, so it's yeah. going to be nice and uh, crunchy and all that on the outside. Or another example I was thinking of is. I mean, it, it is hard to beat the sort of decadent luxury of some refried beans, which are actually in many ways much like the mashed potatoes that, that Americans love on American Thanksgiving and stuff where, uh, you know, the primary way of making these is you're going to be mashing up this starchy thing with a bunch of fat. Uh, in the case of refried beans, it might be uh, lard or it might be oil, kind of like the butter that you would mix up with your classic mashed potatoes. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, you can also say the same for a lot of um – bean-based uh, imitation meats. Uh, you know, they, they, sometimes, some of these in particular are not, they, they're not health food, exactly. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're really good as, as long as you're not uh, hanging too much on the, the meat moniker in some cases. But mm-hmm. I think some of the, the imitation meat today has, has gotten extremely good. I mean, it's, it's to the point where I, I, I feel like someone would have a hard time guessing, uh, uh, you know, what's real and what is imitation. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think the same goes for like um, for for tofu for like soft tofu. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just present soft tofu plain to somebody, and um, it, it might not win them over. But cut it up into cubes, um, fry it up with a pair of extra long uh, chopsticks, like I like to do. Uh, oh yeah. Put a copious amount of salt and pepper on those, and I feel like that should satisfy most appetites because you got your your crunchy, your soft in the middle, your salty, uh, maybe a little bit of spice to it if you put something else on it. You know. I think anybody who's like a big fan of like rich, big flavor, meaty stews and all that, give them some mm-hmm. mapo tofu. I mean, you can't turn it down. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, I want to go deeper into history. So that's the role that uh, Albula argues that beans played in the history of human civilization. I want to go farther back because I was reading about something I I thought was very interesting. Uh, I, I came across this in a New York Times article from October of 2019 by Nicholas St. Fleur called Colorado Fossils Show How Mammals Race to Fill Dinosaurs Void. And this article was uh, covering a fossil find from Colorado from a place called Originally, I think it, I was calling it Coral Bluffs, but I believe it's Corral Bluffs. C-O-R-R-A-L. That's Corral. Is that the word? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I okay. believe so. Okay. My cowboy bona fides are not strong, but, uh, but I think that is what that is. Uh, which, anyway, are discussed in a paper that was published in 2019 in the journal Science by Lyson et al. called Exceptional Continental Record of Biotic Recovery After the Cretaceous-Paleogene Mass Extinction. Now, that extinction event reference there, the Cretaceous-Paleogene Mass Extinction, we, we also sometimes shorten that to the KPG extinction, um, was a mass extinction roughly 66 million years ago, probably caused in large part by a giant impact from space. The leading hypothesis is that that was driven by this impact that left what's uh, today the Chicxulub crater in the Yucatan Peninsula. 
And this mass extinction, you know, we've talked about many times on the show before. It was, of course, not the greatest mass extinction in Earth's history, but one of the greatest. It led to the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs and more broadly, roughly three quarters of the species on Earth. But of course, this event is not just relevant to the dinosaurs who died in it, but it's highly relevant to us because in the ecological void left when dinosaurs were wiped out, suddenly there was a lot of room. There was a lot of room for another order of terrestrial animals to take over the space evacuated by the dead dinosaurs. Of course, that was the mammals, our ancestors. Uh, and we've talked before about some of the interesting biological dynamics that were in play during this time. One of the things I remember us talking about was uh, the role of fungus in allowing mammals to ascend during this period. I think this was covered in our episode on uh, prototaxides, these giant, uh, these giant potentially fungus, you know, stalks that would have been found hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, I remember us talking about a CBC documentary that was discussing how in the wake of the KPG extinction event, so of course the space impact would kick up tons of uh, dust into the atmosphere that would darken the skies, and this would lead to ton uh, tons of dead, decaying plant matter under this darkened sky. And so in this world of sort of darkened skies and dead, decaying plant matter, this is a, a perfect invitation for fungi to thrive. And of course, all of this fungus around would represent a threat to the survival of some of the remaining animals, but it wouldn't affect all animals equally uh, because suddenly our mammalian ancestors, by having warm-blooded bodies, would have much better protection against fungal infections than cold-blooded animals such as the then-dominant reptiles. It's a yeah. Th this this world is, uh, is is interesting to try and imagine. It's kind of a so again, it's a world of of, of rot and decay and fungus. It's a world of uh, of, of rats on the ascent. Uh, uh -huh. It. Um, uh, I'm tempted to compare it to the um, uh, in in the the, the Warhammer fantasy uh, setting. There's this chaos god uh, that's uh, this named Nurgle, which I guess is uh, you know derived from Nurgal, the uh, uh, the ancient deity that we've discussed recently on the Mesopotamian, show. Mesopotamian, yeah, yeah. And uh, but anyway, this chaos god is a god of of decay and uh, and disease. But uh, but often, more often than not, uh, the, the the symbology is that of, uh, of of decay and mushrooms and fungus. Mm. Uh, but then also occasionally these hordes of um, of, of rats, like bipedal rats Ooh. with uh, with blades and such. So uh, this would be a fitting time for for fans of of that faction, mm. I think. I don't know about sword wielding rats. It would just no. be a time of rat swordsmen, but uh. but but they're on the move. They're on the ascent, you know. Yeah. So it's it's almost like the modern idea of rats taking up weapons mm -hmm. and 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 gaining our spot in the world. Yeah. It, I mean, that's basically what's going on here. Like these these small, in many ways, pitiful organisms. When you compare them to the uh, the previous lords of the earth, uh, they have this chance to rise up and take their spot, and they do. And we are. We are the descendants of that uh, that revolution. Yeah, because of this adaptation of having warm-blooded bodies that would help fight off fungal infection. Like I actually found a, a quote that we featured in that previous episode that was from Arturo Casadevall, who is a professor of public health at Johns Hopkins University, who said, quote, The reptiles are quite susceptible to fungal diseases, but your typical mammal, which maintains a temperature in the mid-30s or so, that would be Celsius, mm -hmm. creates a thermal exclusionary zone for fungi. 
So we have like the invisible armor. It's not a shell on the outside. It's not scales. We've got heat armor. Mm. But anyway, so this time that spelled doom or, or at least a suppression for many reptile or cold-blooded species gave uh, gave an opportunity for mammals to really thrive. And so that's one way that the wake of the KPG extinction was a pivotal time for mammal ascendancy. There were just suddenly all these opportunities. So some of these things would be opportunities for new ecological niches, new ways to get food that previously were monopolized by you know better competitive species in the dinosaur clade. And it would be new habitats to explore and things like that. Also, no more dinosaurs eating you all the time. That's a plus. <laughs> I was actually reading a Reuters article by a writer named Will Dunham uh, about this same research from the journal Science in 2019, and it's talking about the how mammals got bigger after the KPG extinction. And uh, so talking about mammals, Dunham writes, quote, Within 700,000 years of the mass extinction, their body mass had become 100 times bigger than the mammals living immediately after the mass extinction. Wow. And so charting the increase is pretty amazing. Uh, to, to read another section from the article here from Reuters here, quote, The mammals that survived the asteroid were mainly small omnivores, the largest being the size of a rat and weighing about a pound or about half a kilogram. So here again, we got rat world, right? Is you know, it's fungus all over the place, mold, rat world, <laughs> that kind of thing. Dead dinosaurs, and then um, within a hundred thousand years of the extinction event, mammals reached about thirteen pounds or six kilograms. By three hundred thousand years after the extinction, they got to fifty-five pounds or twenty-five kilograms, with the first purely herbivorous mammalian species. By seven hundred thousand years after the asteroid, some mammals weighed more than a hundred and ten pounds or fifty kilograms. So this is talking about how, like, you know, within like less than a million years, you've got mammals growing from from rat size to like wolf size. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, again, swords and uh, cloaks aside, that sounds like Skaven to me. Yeah. Uh, so it's because of this extinction that we exist. Uh, this is an important thing to remember. Like, we are the descendants of these mammals. At some point, our ancestry, you go back through your parents and way, way down the line, we trace back to some kind of rat-like creature that survived the KPG extinction. Uh, but one of the interesting things is that scientists don't have a whole lot of fossils from the time right after this mass extinction, at least not as many fossils as they would like to get a fully fleshed out picture of how how the, the mammal world recovered after this event. And so this New York Times article and the Reuters article that I've been talking about are about this paper from science about a fossil cache discovered in Colorado that gives us more insight into the ecology and local mammal life from right after that time. It catalogs a bunch of different mammal species that are all kind of interesting, some growing to the size of like a like a prehistoric capybara. But one of the interesting things about this record is how it connects to the subject of beans, because this fossil site also can tell us a lot about what was going on with plants right around the same time and the stages in which plants recovered after the great dying 66 million years ago. So I want to read a section here from the New York Times article by St. Fleur that, that catalogs this progression of plants. So you've got the mass extinction and then, quote, First came the ferns. With their feather-like leaves, they proliferated across the wasteland for many hundreds of years to a couple thousand years, paving the way for forests to rebound. Next, the palms paraded in. 
dominating the green scene for hundreds of thousands of years. Then, around 300,000 years after the catastrophe, a diverse array of walnuts appeared. That coincided with the jump in diversity and body size of herbivorous mammals, which suggests they were an important food source. We call that world the pecan pie world, said Ian Miller, (laughs) a paleobotanist at the Denver Museum of Natural Science. He added that this epoch also coincided with a warming period in the fossil record, which could indicate that a shifting climate played a role in the development of plants and animals following the extinction event. Uh, But then it gets to another interesting plant development after this discovery, the world's first known bean pod. Mm. So now I want to read a section from this article published in Science. This, again, is by Lyson et al. And the authors here write, quote, The Corral Bluff section provides the oldest known occurrence of the leguminosae, or bean family, represented by fossil seed pods and leaflets dated 65.35 million years ago. The oldest previously recognized legume is based on wood and leaflets from early Paleocene rocks of Argentina, whereas the earliest legume seed pods are not recognized until the late Paleocene, roughly 58 million years ago, of Colombia. Our discovery supports a nearly synchronous first appearance of legumes in North America and Southern South America, a rapid diversification for the group in the earliest Paleocene, and their apparent origination in the Western Hemisphere. So to summarize, they found this bean pod. I think actually they talk about how um, the the record of this bean pod was discovered by a high school student who was helping uh, excavate the site. And I believe there's a documentary that you can find that PBS did about this fossil record discovery and uh, it might get into more detail about the discovery process. But this bean ancestor was dated to something like 700,000 years after the mass extinction event. And it was also timed in synchronization with this warming pulse in the Earth's atmosphere, as well as, uh, as we pointed out earlier, to the appearance of wolf-sized mammals. So the authors here suggest that, well, maybe these beans were helping to provide calorie-dense food sources to these mammals as they're getting bigger. This is not known for sure, but this seems like a, uh, a quite reasonable hypothesis to be explored more. Uh, Dr. Miller, who I quoted earlier, uh, said, quote, we liken them to the protein bars of the ancient world. <laughs> so the appearance of these first beans, this bean pod ancestor, appears to be timed to a sudden shift upward in mammalian body mass. And this makes it look at least possible and, and worthy of further explanation that protein-rich beans were a nutritional driver for mammal ascendancy. So beans were th- the protein bars. And then these various mammals, they were the lift, they were the power lifters. They were the, they were the ones putting on mass. Okay. Well, at least potentially. Well, right. Well, what we've established so far is just this interesting correlation in the appearance mm-hmm. of the of these species. We don't know for sure that like what was eating what, but uh, but yeah, it definitely seems worth looking into more uh, because uh, you know, as I think I've established by this point, I'm all in favor of bean propaganda. <laughs> Whatever makes beans look good. Now, next year, I did have a section about beans and flatulence, but I'm actually thinking maybe I'm going to save that for part two. Yeah, maybe we can hold that and uh, and release it in the next episode. I think that's a good idea. So I think I'm just going to clench down and see if we, we can save that for the next one. <laughs> 
give you incentive to return. But next time we're going to be talking about all kinds of crazy bean stuff. Uh, yes. Beans and souls, beans and farts. It's going to be a, it's, it'll be a blast, so to speak. <laughs> but wait, we're not done yet. No, no, no. We've got, we've got more stuff to discuss here. Uh, more early, early bean history, um, our, our attempts to understand early bean history, and uh, I think a little bit of, of magic and mythology related to beans. So, as usual for for all things ancient, one of my first stops in in looking at this topic was to uh, start flipping around in the seventy great inventions of the ancient world. Oh, yeah. uh, that's the book by um, anthropologist Brian M. Fagan. But the different sections of it, uh, he'll work with with other um, experts. And mm-hmm. in in the section dealing with ancient cereal crops, he worked with uh, Stephen Mithin, professor of prehistory at the University of Reading. And this mostly uh, uh, mostly focus, focuses on various cereal uh, crops, but uh, there's a really good part of this that deals with um, with the domestication of of beans and and other plants in the Americas. And they point out that there were, there seem to have been two centers of plant domestication in the Americas. First of all, there was that there was the the Andes, and this would have focused mostly on quinoa, uh, but also on the potato. And then in central Mexico, you have that trifecta of maize or corn, beans, and squash. Now, in both of these cases, the domestications were undertaken by unsettled mobile peoples. And we've touched on this before about the idea, you know, sometimes we have this sort of this rough, simple version in our head of of what it means for people to stop moving around and start growing crops. You know, the idea is like, should we hunt and gather anymore? No, let's just settle here and grow some beans. It, It doesn't seem to quite work like that in history. Right. It seems hard to imagine a scenario when somebody who like grew up as a hunter-gatherer was just like, okay, now we're planting crops. No, it seems like there's a more gradual transition of uh, sort of the slow partial domestication of wild grains and crops. And over time, this leads to the realization that this could become a full-time living. Yeah. And ultimately, I, I think this is a more realistic um, way of looking at it and understanding it, because otherwise, if you if you have that 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 full stop and and then shift to uh, plant domestication or animal domestication, I feel like there's a gap there in the in in our brains, and mm-hmm. it's a gap that some of us may want to insert aliens in. You know, oh yeah, you start yeah, yeah. thinking like, well, how did we how did we get the idea to grow and domesticate beans or turn wheat into flour? Um, Something must have told us how to do it. There must have been some magic flame or some demigod or some sort of alien being. And, of course, there are, there are plenty of, of tremendous myths and folktales that, that kind of deal with that exact situation. And I'll, uh, we'll get to a couple of mm-hmm. examples in a bit. You know, those stories are good enough that you don't need to make up a new one. That's you know, right. You don't, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to say, oh, it was aliens that gave us farming. <laughs> All right, so wild beans grow throughout Central America, and a cluster of wild beans around Guadalajara seem to be the common ancestor of the common domesticated bean that we mentioned earlier. This was, uh, what, uh, Faziolus vulgaris, and this species comes in, in many different forms, including red beans, pinto beans, and kidney beans. Yeah, a lot of the beans we eat today are are variations on Phaseolus. Oh, Phaseolus, the genus more broadly, and Phaseolus vulgaris, the common bean. Now you might wonder, well, what, what's the difference between, between this wonderful bean and the various wild beans? What's the main difference? Well, it has to do with how the bean pods split open. 
in the wild, the bean pod just eventually splits open, spills the seeds so that maybe it may be spread, you know, uh, by largely by various organisms. But this was gradually bred out of domesticated beans as people repeatedly picked bean pods that were less prone to splitting apart. And it's unsure to what degree this was intentional or accidental, you know, maybe mixes of both at different times. But the results were domesticated bean species that could not spread their seeds without the aid of human harvesters. Hmm, interesting. Now, you might wonder, okay, when does this take place? Well, Fagan and Mithen wrote that the the dating, uh, at at least at the time of their writing, was patchy at best. uh, And they did not provide a rough estimate for uh, for these beans in Central America. Though the squash seems to have undergone biological domestic change by um, 7500 BCE and maize by 4200 BCE. Quinoa, again, in the south, dates roughly to 5000 BCE. I love this kind of puzzle in human history of like putting together what kind of like human activity could have led to the like changes in the evolution of a plant species like this that like Mm -hmm. without even necessarily intending to. Yeah. Yeah. What sorts of of choices be they, you know, just just very direct choices or just sort of sort of, you know, uh, gradual selections take place by Mm -hmm. humans interacting uh, with uh, the natural world. Now, I think you promised me some bean myths from ancient Mesoamerica, didn't you? Yes, yes. So, so again, like we said, there doesn't need to be that gap in which you insert the divine. Uh, but it's, it's, often, it's, it's often very interesting and entertaining and, uh, and, and, and also you know, sacred when you have, uh, have a god slip into that role. And indeed, there's a wonderful Aztec myth that I came across about the bringing of grains and seeds into the human diet, which I read about in Aztec and Maya Myths by Carl Taub. This is from 1993. Um, now, now I should be clear that there are several different myths about the origins of maize in particular, uh, because maize or corn is just um, you know, vitally important uh, to, uh, to, to, to Central American cultures. And at times they're described as a kind of sacred flesh or the precursor to human flesh or the flesh of the gods. Maize is life. But beans are nice, too. <laughs> beans may be less flashy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as maize or corn, I and I, I feel like that's even the case today. You know, it's Children of the Corn by Stephen King, not mm-hmm. Children of the Beans. <laughs> um, <laughs> like maize is maybe just a little sexier uh, than beans, but the beans are vitally important too. And so they get looped into some of these myths as well. Well, I mean, this goes back to something that I was talking about when I read that section from Ken Albala earlier about how uh, I think he was talking about some of the domestication of lentils in particular. But, you know, he talks about how together the grains and the uh, and the beans form a nutritional package that supplies things that the other doesn't have and uh, doesn't have or doesn't have in the same abundance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the example here was that uh, combining starches and legumes where the amino acids that are not in the lentils are supplied by the grains, but the lysine that's missing from the grains is supplied by the legumes. And that when you have these different crops coming together to form a sort of like diet package, they fill the gaps of the other. Yeah, yeah. So you need them both, even if one is, if one takes on slightly more sacred connotations in the mythmaking. Now, this myth in particular was recorded in Legends of the Suns, and this was found in the 1558 Codex uh, Chimopapoca, and this was written in the Nautil language. 
So in this myth, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm mostly just summarizing here. Uh, so humans have been created and I'm, and I'm not entirely sure from the context if, if, if like a lot or most of the humans are actual infants in this scenario, but the, the gods are unsure what the humans are going to eat. Like, okay, the, the humans exist now, but they have to eat something. So the gods go out in search. The Aztec gods go out in search of things that humans can consume. Okay. And during his own search, uh, well, we have a familiar character here. We have uh, Quetzalcoatl, the, the plumed serpent god uh, that we've uh, discussed on previous episodes. Uh, he's involved in the search. He goes out looking for sustenance for the, the new humans. And he comes across a red ant carrying a single grain of maize. And he realizes, well, this might be the very grain that humans need in order to survive. So the plumed serpent god sweeps, you know, swoops down from, uh, from the sky, and he, he just starts talking to the ant. And he says, hey, that's, that's some wonderful, um, wonderful food you got there on your back. Uh, can you tell me where you got it? And the ant says, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which I, which I love. Ant defiance. Yeah. But uh, Quetzalcoatl is insistent, so the ant finally reveals the source of this and many other precious grains, including beans, and it's the interior vault of Mount Tonacateptal, the mountain of sustenance. So Quetzalcoatl is, is, is impressed by this, transforms his own body into that of a black ant, and he infiltrates the mountain of sustenance. And indeed, he finds it just filled. It's like this hollowed out uh, vault, and it's just filled with seeds and grains. Uh, there's maize there. There are beans. Um, so he steals some of the maize, brings it back, and the other gods, they take the, the, the maize, they chew it up, and they feed it to these human infants to make them strong. So uh, already, I think it's interesting that instead of some demigod or hero stealing a secret resource from the gods and bringing it to humanity, we instead having we we seem to have something more like a god stealing a secret resource from nature itself. From this treasure trove hidden within the mountain, it almost it almost makes me wonder if this uh, this in some way inspired the Hobbit. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it, it, I, I, when you think of, of of mountain depths filled with riches, you, you do kind of think of the dwarves. But I also wonder if it, you know, if, if it is also ultimately telling about you know, trends in Mesoamerican um, religion and considerations of the natural environment. You know hmm. that uh, that that that. That ultimately, that nature sort of stands apart from the gods to a certain extent. Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying like not identifying the gods with nature. The gods are not the forces of nature, but another thing like humanity that sort of must wrestle with the forces of nature. Maybe in in some ways to a certain degree, though, on the other hand, you do have gods that are very much associated with aspects of nature as well Mm -hmm. uh, in these systems. So, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a clear cut division. So anyway, Quetzalcoatl took on the form of an ant, brought out like a few pieces of corn to help feed humanity. Uh, but clearly, this is not going to hold up in the long run. So uh, what they need to do is they need to bring the mountain of sustenance to the humans. Mm. So Quetzalcoatl slings a rope around the mountain and tries to drag it to the human nursery camp. But it's too big because it's a mountain. Uh, right. Another plan is needed. So they decide to bring in a little um, a little counseling on this. And they turn to... Oxamoco and Sipactonal. This is the first human couple and the goddess of night and the god of astrology and calendars, though I think both of them are, are considered gods of astrology and mm-hmm. calendars. Okay, so they sound like they would have some wisdom or maybe predictive power. 
Yeah, yeah. And so these these two individuals divine that they must turn to another god for help to help them plunder the riches of the mountain. The diseased god and future sun deity Nana Hudson, whose whose name apparently means full of sores. Ooh. That's a good god name. Oh, yeah. this is funny that we were just talking about Nurgle earlier with the uh, the the sort of disease god. Yeah, well, um it, it's it's slightly different. I think that this god is not necessarily a manifestation of disease but is mm. he he himself is diseased yeah and then is is fated to become a sun deity but but right. yeah again we see this kind of element of plague and disease if we, we it's tempting to want to compare that to this this history of uh, of mold world and the uh, and the the rise of the bean and the rat so anyway um uh, Nana Hudson moves in, and with the aid of uh, blue, white, yellow, and red uh, Tlelocks, the directional gods of the storms, um, Nana Hudson breaks open the, the mountain of sustenance. The grains spill out, and then the Tlelocks, they, they gather up the maize, the beans, other culinary treasures from the depths of the mountain, and they dispense them to the people. Oh, you know, I I love this for multiple reasons. I mean, this is just a great story, but also... There's a certain kind of plausibility to it that uh, that that you know is it's not just the sort of myth logic of breaking open a mountain full that's a cornucopia of food that can then feed everyone. I mean, as we've talked about again with like grains and beans, a really wonderful thing about these types of foods is that they can be stored and transported in dried form, unlike mm-hmm. a lot of other foods. And because of this quality that they can be stored and transported dry with their nutritional content intact, in order to be resurrected later through cooking uh they they have so much uh so much sort of like versatility as a civilization founding food source than a lot of other types of food would have foods that generally need to be uh preserved in some way specially or kept fresh or something like that but also because of this like they they remind me more of the physical treasures that you would see in other types of stories where there's a mountain full of gold coins or something i mean mm-hmm. here it's like you can have dried grains literal beans or, or grains yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like this is the true, the the the, the true larder uh, worth raiding here. Um, I also love the idea of the calendar gods being involved in uh, in cracking it open, uh, because ultimately, like uh, being able to, to being people of the calendar uh, aids you in the domestication of plants and in the uh, the management of your crops and your ability to you know to know when to plant when to harvest when to uh, seal away and then when to uh, you know uh, bring it back and plant once more that is interesting i didn't make that connection yeah Okay, well, I think maybe we're going to have to call part one there, but we've got so much more interesting stuff to talk about next time. We're going to talk about beans and souls, uh, ancient religious beliefs about beans from other parts of the world. We're going to talk about soybeans, which, yes, they're also beans. Uh, it's, it's going to be the bee's knees. So join us again next time. That's right. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, maybe some of our past treatments of, of food-related topics like tomatoes, for example, uh, you can find all of those in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, you'll find that wherever you get your podcasts. We have our, our core science episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have uh, artifact episodes on Wednesdays, listener mail on Mondays, and on Fridays we do uh, Weird House Cinema, which is uh, not so sciencey uh, and more about just us uh, geeking out over some some weird movie from the past. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.